podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of The Paddock and the Pavilion. Today's guest is Roland Butcher, the former Middlesex and England cricketer of the 1970s and 1980s. I caught up with Roland in Barbados, unfortunately only via Skype, to discuss his career, firsts and favourites. Enjoy the programme, which can be downloaded on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. I'm delighted today to welcome to the pavilion uh, Roland Butcher, the first black cricketer to play cricket for England. It seems a long while since you spoke at the March cricket dinner back in 2004, Roland. Yes, Stephen, it's a great pleasure to be with you. And yes, 2004, many years ago. Yeah. How, how are you anyway? Absolutely fantastic. Obviously in Barbados now for the last 16 years, um, weather's great. Um, but like everyone else, the last three or four months have been quite tough for everybody with this COVID-19. But apart from that, fine. So what things are you up to now? Well, I have just actually, the end of this month will be a year that I retired from the University of the West Indies. I was at the university for 15 years, was director of sports, and the last four or five years as head coach of the Academy of Sport. So I retired um, July 31st last year. Right now, yeah. pretty busy with my other commitments. I'm a director of the Barbados Group Association, um, also on the West Indies Cricket Committee, and and chairman of the Everton Week Centre of Excellence and then I have some other committees that I'm on like scholarships and placements and cricket development as well so I'm busy. Well the Everton Week so it must have been a very sad day for you when Everton passed away recently. Yeah absolutely because Everton was a very close friend and when I say close I mean he only lived about 500 metres from where I do so we saw each other quite often but you know we were close friends uh, over a long period even from the time I was in England so it was a sad loss. Um, great player, but also a great man as well. And of course, you're related as well to Basil Butcher, who played Test cricket for the West Indies. Yes, and unfortunately, early in the year, he passed away. I actually went to his funeral in Ghana. And um, again, that was a, a sad occasion too, because, you know, not just being a family member, but, you know, another great West Indian player gone at this time. Now, when did you first start playing cricket? Well, that's a very good question. Um, as, as far as I can remember, I mean, being a little boy, you know, maybe six or seven, I'm sure that I was running around trying to play most of the time, certainly until I went to England when I was 13 and a half. Most of the cricket would have been pretty informal in terms of typical playground type of, of sport where everybody gets together and play and make their own rules, etc., etc. So limited organized cricket. Probably had only played a few games for the school, my primary school, but generally most of my cricket was informal cricket. And when you came to the UK, I read somewhere that you were it, it was you were playing football before you were playing cricket. Yes, because um, coming to a new environment like the UK, where everyone is playing football, naturally, you know, children tend to adapt quite well. So I, I adapted to playing football and yes um, it was through playing football that I got asked to take part in a cricket game. Um, this was just at Stevenage? Yes, yeah, I mean just basically my our normal weekend as kids would be to go to the local park and play football 
two or three hours and on this particular Sunday as we were about to finish to go back home um, some guys came onto the field and put some stumps up on the, on the pitch and then came over to our group and asked if any of us would like to play because they were short of players. Most of us said, no, of course not. We're not interested. We've been here for three hours, want to get home and watch football in, on the TV. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, one of my friends who, you know, we had spoke about cricket before said, you like the game, why don't you play? So he really persuaded me in the end to, to play and it all started from there. And you were playing for Stevenage first eleven, I read, by the time you were 15. Yes, um, very quickly. I this this team that actually asked us to play at the time was Stevenage third eleven. So, yeah. having played there, I, I gravitated quite quickly to the second eleven and then into the first eleven. As you said, um, probably by the time I was 15. And then you you then joined the MCC Young Cricketers, is that right? That 1970. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of a gap be, be, before then. Um, yeah. One of the guys at the club, a gentleman by the name of Cyril Hammond, who was one of the, the players, he was also a, a football manager as well. He was moving from Stevenage to take up a job in Gloucestershire as uh, chief fundraiser for the club. And while he was there, he recommended me as a young talent to the club. Um, they invited me down for trials. And for two years, uh, I would go down every summer, spend the entire summer playing for the Gloucestershire youth team. So... It was after that that Gloucestershire sent me up to to Lords for a trial for the MCC Young Professionals. Ah, because I, I wondered why you played for Gloucestershire second eleven. It's one of the questions I was going to ask you because I looked up on Cricket Archive and found your first game for their second eleven in July 1971, when you must have been 18. Is that? 71. Yeah, I was 17. I was that yeah. was that would have been my second year at um, MCC Young Professionals. And you played a game against North Hants, uh, this was, uh, which featured Safraz was playing in this game, who already then was a test player for the Pakistan side. And, and you got 3-15 three, three in 15 in that game. Yeah, well, not, not an illustrious start. <laughs> but then you started playing for Middlesex seconds then, uh, and obviously then on to the first team at, at Middlesex. Yeah, I stayed with the, I was with the MCC on professionals 1970 I got offered a contract by Middlesex for the 72 season. So I joined Middlesex in, in 1972. And I, I reading your first first class match was um, on the 22nd of June 1974 against Yorkshire at Middlesbrough. In Middlesbrough, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, the Yorkshire side was captained by Geoffrey Boycott. Uh, Middlesex side captained by Mike Brearley, but was still included the, the old timers Fred Titmus and, and John Murray. That's right. And um, on that day, you were you batted number six, and you were caught Hutton. That's Richard Hutton, bowled yeah. Jeff Cope for a duck. Yes, it was an absolute nightmare pitch. Jeff Cope and Fred Titmus um, got nearly all the wickets. I think Titmus got 14 or 15 in the game, and Cope got, you know, he got seven or eight as well. So it was it was an awful pitch. Norman Featherstone batted really well. I think he got 100 and got 100 on it, uh, and we actually won, and I didn't have to bat in the second innings. Thank God. No, you won by an innings, yes. Um, yeah. I say it dates you because, uh, to an extent, because of Fred Titmus, I mean, he, he got seven wickets in the second innings. He, he was he played in the 1940s. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Fred spanned about four or five decades. That's right. And then I noticed that that winter you actually went back to Barbados because I found a game you played for them against Jamaica uh, when you uh, when you opened the batting. The Barbados team included people like Collis King, Van Van Bernholder, and Keith Boyce. And 
Michael Holden was playing against you and opened the bowling for Jamaica. Yes, uh, absolutely. That was played in Montego Bay. Uh, I think Jeffrey Dujon played as well. Uh, that was the, the very first game, first class match they've ever had it in Montego Bay. And yes, Michael Holden played in that. Was that the first time you'd faced Michael Holden? No. Well, yes, it was. I mean, he, he he was only young like all of us. I mean, he was um, you know he was not recognised at that stage. Yeah, and moving on, uh, I found your first first class century, which was I think probably a bank holiday weekend in 1978 in August. Against, um, of course. <laughs> against Gloucestershire, yeah. <laughs> yes, at Bristol. Uh, well, Bristol, yes. as they were called in those days, but. Uh, and Mike Selby was captain of the Middlesex side. I, probably Mike Brilly was involved in a test match on that day. Um, yes, that was, um, yeah, Bristol. I think Mike Proctor played in that game for Gloucestershire. Yes, it was ironic that I would get my first first-class 100 against Gloucestershire. Um, I don't think of, they've ever forgiven me really for, obviously, one, going to Middlesex and two, for my first 100 against them. Uh, and subsequently to that, uh, I, I I got quite a few a few hundreds against them. Oh, they were one of your favourite sides, were they, to play against? Well, I mean, um, I don't know why, because as I said, I, I had very fond memories of my time at Gloucestershire. As a, as a youth player, you know, I played in the same team as um, Andy Stovold and um, David Graveney and Jeff Howarth, the New Zealand player, was our captain at the time. And at the club at that time, there was a young Zahir Abbas and Sadiq Mohammed. So, you know, I, I, I played with a lot of those young guys who eventually went, came on to be, you know, Gloucestershire regular players. So I, I had a lot of affiliation with the club and I, and I still think a lot about the club because I think they did a lot for me. That's good. And did scoring, scored 142 that day. Um, did that make, that innings make a lot of difference to you when you, after scoring your first century? Absolutely. Um, you know, you'll always remember the very first 100 that you, you scored at first class cricket. And I certainly uh, remembered it. Uh, I think to this day, I can still still have fond memories of it because it was number one, my first. And it was also against a very good uh, bowling attack and, you know, in their backyard as well. So it was very satisfying. Did you know Viv Richard scored his first century in first class cricket when he scored 102 for Somerset against Gloucestershire in May 1974. Now, you were renowned as a brilliant fielder and attacking middle-order batsman, and then you were picked for the England uh, one-day international side against Australia, uh, a game that took place on the 22nd of August 1980 at Edgbaston. What do you yes, remember uh, about that, that game? Um, again, fond memories um, of that game. Um, I was obviously selected. It was a two-match series against Australia. Two butchers were actually selected. There were myself and Alan Butcher from Surrey. We were selected in the squad. The first game, Alan played in the first game. Um, I, I, I didn't play in the first game. Second game was at Edgebaston. I played and, and he sat out. Um, what I remember about the game is it was a very high-scoring game. Excellent. Yeah, England got three. England got 320. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, boycott Gooch. Uh, I think Galathi got a half century, got a half century. As I said, we got over 300. Um, Australia replied, um, got very close. I think Kim Hughes, I think Kim Hughes got 100 or so. Against a good Australian attack of Lily Thompson, Pascoe, and other players like um, Greg Chappell, you know, Rhea Bright, etc., etc. So it was a good, good side. And the important thing was, you know, we came up as winners on a, on a very entertaining day. So... Really, for me, it was it was really 
delight. I, I enjoy that day, even to this day, when I think about it, because everything just went right on that day. It was a lovely day, um, big crowd, good pitch, um, played with some fantastic players, and of course we won. And you scored 52 in 38 balls, which in those days was uh, was going some. Yes, in those days, I mean, I, I found out afterwards that it was actually, um, it became the fastest 50 in international cricket in, in ODI. So, you know, that was that was nice to certainly have that in your first game. Now, that season in 1980, Middlesex won the championship and also the NatWest Trophy, uh, where you scored a, a half century in the final against Surrey. And after that, you were selected to go on the tour of the West Indies. How did you find out you'd been selected? Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. That season was a very good one for the club. Um, as you said, we did the double and obviously I got selected for the ODI. I was a little bit disappointed not getting selected for the the um, centenary test. Remember the centenary test was played yes. that same year. So I was a bit disappointed not to be selected there. But um, the season finished. I went off to Canada to my cousins and my wife uh, on a vacation and was was tracked down in, in Canada to tell me I'd been selected to go uh, on the tour of the West Indies. So that's was how it I found out. Was it by a telephone call or telephone call? Or? Telephone call. Somehow um, uh, a reporter managed to track me down. Um, how he did, I have no idea because I, I left no forwarding address as to where I was going, uh, where I was staying, but somehow uh, they managed to find me and give me the, the good news. Because in those days you heard of people finding out through CFAX and things like that, didn't you? So at least you got a phone yeah. call. Yeah. Well, I, I got, I, I mean, that was from a reporter. That was not from an administrator. I guess with my audio call up, I mean, that was slightly strange as well because um, the day that it was actually announced, I was, I was at Lords. We were practicing at Lords Middlesex as usual, and when we finished practice, I think I was getting ready to go home or something when I got a call from my wife asking me if I'd been selected for England. Um, I said, no, I, I have heard nothing about that. And then she informed me that her boss had said he'd heard something on, on the news. Uh, I got home in the evening. My father called to ask the same question. I said, well, I have no idea. Nobody's told me anything. And it was not until about nine o'clock in the evening when the news was on the TV that I, I saw the team announced that was the first that I actually knew that I had been selected. Oh, so you found out by television. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so our, the tour of the West Indies in 1981 was, was quite a uh, traumatic tour for, for other reasons. But um, you made your first test appearance in the third test uh, because the second test had been a, been called off because of the Rob, Robin Jackman affair in Guyana. Had, had you been selected for that test or did they actually select a side? Or? Well, I think I would have played in that test because the first test in Trinidad I didn't play. We went to Ghana. Um, we actually did play an ODI in, in Ghana, which I played in the ODI. And I was in line to play the test match as well. Uh, obviously, because of what took place, the test was cancelled, which meant we had to move on to Barbados, which became the third test. So, you know, I, I actually was... You picked for that as it worked out. Um, I think it was nice to to have played that first test in the place of my birth, amongst her, my family and friends, etc. But it also would have been nice to have made a debut in Ghana because in, in Ghana at that time the, the pitch at border was one of the, the greatest batting pitches in the world. So right. it, it would have been nice to have perhaps played on a surface like that. 
So what did it feel like playing in Barbados and being in the dressing room uh, with, with Jeffrey Boycott? Um, Ian Botham was captain, uh, David Gower. Well, it's, well, I mean, it, when I say I didn't feel anywhere, uh, I mean, don't forget, you know, I had played a lot of years with those guys before. Uh, Ian Botham, Ian Botham was on the MCC Young Pros professional um, side with me at the same time. We were there at the same time. 1970, he came. We were there for those two years. So, you know, I had known him since then. Obviously, we'd played each, against each other. Similarly, with Boycott and Gooch and others, obviously, we had played against each other for many years. So, and obviously, in the same ODI team, my first one international, all of those players were in the same team. So, um, it didn't really make a big difference uh, being in the dressing room because I, I had known all those players and they knew me as well. And did it at the time being the first black cricketer did did it sort of make any difference to you was there that much publicity at the time yeah i mean there was massive publicity i mean the publicity really started you know way back in in september october time when the team was selected but as the months went by it was intensified and obviously right throughout the series in the caribbean you know it was at fever pitch in literally every island where we went so yeah, I mean it was a big it was a big deal for the Caribbean. Um, obviously, the first time um, a Black West Indian had been selected for England. Obviously, they were very proud of my achievements. Um, naturally, they wanted the West Indies to win, but uh, they would have liked for me to have been a success. But England lose. So I think generally around the Caribbean um, it was very well received. And I in every place that I went, I certainly was, you know, I got some very good receptions. Good. And you were, at a time, of course, the West Indies were one of one of the best, well, the best side in the world, and probably at their peak, really. Um, I mean, you look down the bowling attack they had for the the games you played in. It was Roberts holding Croft and Garner, and then a young Mar- Malcolm Marshall in the wings. So you couldn't, yes. have had, couldn't have had an easy attack to get runs against, could you? I mean, Absolutely. I mean, there was a simple reason why they were the best. I mean, they did have that four or five prong pace attack. Malcolm Marshall actually played in the last Test match in Jamaica, so they're a very formidable side, and you know, backed up with some quality batsmen, you know, Greenwich and Haynes, Richards, Lloyd, Gomes, you know, so they had a, a very well balanced team, um, and there was a simple reason why they ruled cricket in the world because they were had a, a lot of talented players performing at the top of their game. So it was a tough series, but you know, I think England also had perhaps one of their best sides ever too because. You know, when you've got a team with with Gooch, Boycott, Gower, your first three players who've all scored over 8,000 test runs. You know, you had Gatin, you had Mike, you had um, Mike Gatin in the squad. You, you, you know, Bob Willis, Paul Downton, you know, Graham Dilley, John Embry, Peter Willey. You know, you know, England had a very strong team. Uh, I don't think uh, Ian Botham, of course. I don't think since England would would have had a team with the likes of those players, for sure. Well, in that game, the West Indies, they got 265. We replied with 122. And um, batting at number five, you got 17. You were caught Richards, bold Colin Croft. Yeah. But that that particular test was also the game where the Michael holding over to Jeffrey Boycott when the when he yep, was playing bold yeah. the sixth ball. Yeah, Yeah, that was that. Was that. Yeah, the, the very first... Over our innings, actually, it was. Um, and, yeah, it was a, 
a pretty torrid one for Jeffrey. Uh, <laughs> as you said, the final delivery, um, he was out of the final delivery. That's right. And so the West Indies went on to win the game by an innings and 298 runs. And then you played the uh, fourth and fifth tests at Antigua and Jamaica. And you played also played the two one-day internationals on the tour. So what were your reflections on the tour at the end? Um, I think before I go on to the reflection, um, you, you, you must also remember that during my first test in Barbados, our assistant manager, Ken Barrington, died as well. So, um, he had a heart attack and died overnight. So I think that was around the second day. So that was a pretty, you could imagine, um, what should have been a, a great home coming for me was was saddened by that as well. But I think something like that really took the win out of most of us because it was very difficult for everybody to um, continue playing the game of cricket uh, with the same sort of intensity when, you know, a member of your team, uh, had, you know, passed away. I, I can't remember at any time where, where that would have happened on the tour where a, ma- a part of the management, you know, had passed away uh, and then you're expected to continue and perform against the best team in the world. Um, so it was extremely difficult. I think overall, I thought, you know, we, we did did pretty well. I mean, I think this, the series was 2-0 against a, a side two like draws, that. Yeah. To, lose, draws, yeah. to lose only 2-0 in, um, against like that and the backbone of what happened after well, in the middle of this, which would have been the second test that was played. Then they had to play two more after that. I thought, you know, England did really well to finish that, that series. And, you know, Gooch and, Boy- Gooch and Gower also did exceptionally well, along with Peter Willey. So overall, you know, that, that was a tough, tough um, tour for us, not just cricket-wise, but I think emotionally as well, it, it, it was very tough. Yeah, I mean, a tough baptism for yourself. And uh, you must have hoped after that to taste test cricket and international cricket again. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you you know, you get a, a taste and, and obviously you want more. Uh, it wasn't to be at that time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if nowadays people are, would easily be given more than three matches uh, in a test career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, against, against that type of opposition in their backyard and... Obviously, the the things that happen on that tour with it, the the cancellation of a test match and a teammate like Jackman being asked to leave the country and you having to leave as well, uh, then the Ken Barrington affair, and then you know you're playing against the best in the world. You know, th- there's a lot there's a lot there to be taken into consideration. Uh, obviously, the selectors, you know, didn't feel that that was the case, and lots of changes were made in 1981. Now, you're now a star player for Middlesex, who were, um, my, myself, a Middlesex supporter, and we they won the, uh, the NatWest Trophy in 80, 84 and 88. They won the Benson Hedges a couple, a couple of times, and also the County Championship won it uh, 1980, 1982, 85 and 1990. And so you scored 1,000 runs in 84, 85 and 86, but you suffered a quite serious injury in 1983. Yes, yes, that, that was... You know, and that came, the timing for that was pretty bad, actually, because I, I felt really back to my best and probably better than my best at that point, because the event of 82, I spent in Australia as the overseas player for Tasmania. Myself and Michael Holland were the two overseas players. And I had a relatively good year, but I, for sure, my game had improved um, immensely in Australia. Came back with lots of optimism. 
I remember started the 83 season was a very wet season lots of days not playing and by July uh, I think we'd only played about six weeks of cricket but in that six weeks um, I certainly made the most of that at that point I had about 700 runs in the six weeks I'd taken 36 catches and it was in very good form and I really felt as if you know I, I would make it back into the England side that year but then that um, afternoon in July I, I missed a short ball hooked at a short ball a little bit early um, was struck under the left eye had multiple fractures end of, of season there and what I didn't really realize at the time which you never do was you know you, you found out really that it was the it was the end of your international career because as a result of that injury that I sustained it, it you know I lost some vision in the left eye so you know if you're going to play at the highest level against the best um, you have to be certainly your eyesight has to be spot on and really that hampered me because I came back probably June in June the following year I got back into the cricket but I had to make lots of changes in terms of head position and to compensate for the the loss of sight in the left eye which is the leading eye etc so it really hampered my my career and I think I probably knew at that time that because the sight was not going to get any better I had two or three operations the surgeons basically said look um you know we, we we can put some silicone at the back of the eye to bring the eye forward they said it, it may make different good difference to your vision it may not i i felt it was too much of a risk and i said no i, I no i don't want any silicone at the back of my eye mm. um so i just had to fight through to try and adjust the sight but it was never it was never the same again not because of the, the of the the injury because i was never afraid of, of, of fast bowling but I think in terms of the sharpness of sight, that, that was a real issue. He certainly had a successful county career with Middlesex, though, in a very powerful side. Absolutely. Um, I mean, following that injury, um, thank God I was still able to continue and play another seven years uh, professionally. So, you know, I was still good enough to play at the first-class level. And as you said, yes, we were extremely successful um, during my period at Middlesex and you know, I retired at the end of '90, and you just had a game. We'd won the championship that year, so um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my my time at Middlesex. And um, fantastic team, um, great players, good leader, and you know, a good club to be playing for. And did you retire at the right time then, at the end of '1990? At the time, I thought I was perhaps doing the right thing. A couple of years later, I probably thought, you know, maybe maybe I could have gone on, um, especially when I saw Graham Gooch and others go on into their 40s. I could have carried on because I think physically, I, you know, I was always very fit, so there was no issues in terms of of fitness. Um, I think in my situation, it probably was a hasty decision because, you know, I, I still I still had another year of my contract left. You know, my contract current contract didn't expire until the end of 1991. Um, I think what hastened my decision to retire was the fact that 1989 was my benefit year. Uh, which meant hard work that, and a benefit, yeah. Yeah, which meant obviously you would have started working from the previous year, you work all through 1989, then played all 1990. So I think I was I was physically and mentally tired. Really, what I should have done, thinking back, was perhaps 
I should have just taken the entire winter away from any form of, of cricket, etc., etc., and come back in 1991 afresh. But instead, obviously, I, I made a decision which I felt two, two, a year or two later that I, I'd made the wrong decision. And then you had a, a year playing, uh, I've got to get this in, because you had, you had a year playing uh, minor county cricket, cricket for Suffolk. And in your first game, you played against Cambridgeshire. So I thought I'd got to get that in. Um, <laughs> when, and and uh, this, this was against uh, this was for Suffolk against Cambridgeshire at Bury St Edmunds. When those two Cambridgeshire stalwarts, um, Stuart Turner and, and J.K. Lever, were both playing for Cambridgeshire, and you got you got naught in the first innings and one in the second innings. But uh, yeah, well, that was um, not a great game. Um, I think yeah, minor companies I found quite hard because it, not having the same intensity as first class cricket and you know first class cricket you know you're in a structure where you know there's regular practice etc i was living in buckinghamshire so my time was fairly limited to get up to brace and edmunds um, in suffolk so you know it, it, it was difficult for me because i was a person right throughout my career who enjoyed training and practice for me i had to train and practice so that i would be okay during the games so some people find it okay not to practice, but I, I certainly don't and didn't at the time. So it, it was tough for me. And I, I think perhaps I was, you know, my mind probably was not as focused as it should have been. And then after retirement, I've read so many different things that um, you've done, um, one of which was doing your UEFA B coaching badge with Brendan Rogers as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I was um, in... In, I, yeah, I was, after I finished um, playing, I mean, I had been coaching, doing coaching qualifications before that, but I then decided, you know, perhaps to try and, you know, look at a football career. So I did my UEFA coaching license, uh, met Brendan Rogers, who was doing his at the same time on that course. Uh, we got on very well. He was a young man who retired very early from the game. As you know, he was Irish, under-21 international, sustained in injuries, um, and very early decided that he wanted to be a coach. So we, over the three months, we got on really well, had similar ideas, um, discussed lots about coaching, etc. And following that, sometime later, um, he was appointed as academy director at Reading, much to my surprise, once day, one day I got a phone call and it was Brendan telling me he'd been appointed academy director and he would like me to come and work with him. So um, I said yes and I, I went to, to Reading as an academy coach, ran my own team and worked with him there for a while. And he also did some schools coaching at Arsenal. Yes, I mean, that was obviously part that even throughout my cricket career, I, I, I was doing that for about 10 years. Um, I was a soccer school coach um, for Arsenal. Um, that was very enjoyable, and the, you know, one of my very good friends is actually Alan Sefton. He's still there. He's been at Arsenal for well over 30 years. Very close friend of mine. Um, he was one who was pushing me a lot to keep taking my qualifications, etc. Um, from the from those Arsenal days, and um, yeah, it was a great time being at Arsenal there to see. It was during the time obviously when they were extremely successful and. Had some fantastic players, so yeah, that was a great a great period of, of my time. And being an Arsenal fan myself, I, I, I'd like to see us be a bit more successful at the moment, but we can't have everything. Uh, Absolutely. 
you also um, you coach Bermuda at cricket. Yes. Well, what happened was um, well, Brendan was I just was at um, obviously Reading. Jose Mourinho at Chelsea was at Chelsea and was very impressed with him. So Mourinho took him to Chelsea, and you know from that point is when I I then went back to cricket. I, I took the positioning uh, Bermuda as as national coach, and really that was a separation from football um, at that point. Oh, so Jose Mourinho had an effect on your actual <laughs> career then as well. <laughs> well, he had an effect on Brenda's as well. Yeah, in a, in a good way. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. Now, moving just on to our favourites round. Let's find out Roland's favourites. Just a few questions about favourite things of yours. Uh, The first question is, what your favourite ever day's cricket? My favourite ever day's cricket, I would have to say, would be the... I I would say that ODI against Australia at um, Edgbaston in 1980. And your your favourite batsman and why? Favorite batsman, without doubt, Viv Richards. Not just a great player, but everything about him, his demeanor, his confidence, um, his shot making, the ability to change games. Fantastic fielder, catcher, very confident in everything he did. Um, so for me, really, he, he, he was the complete player that I admired. Yeah, and he got 100 in that first test you played in as well, though. Your favourite, your favourite bowler. Favourite bowler of all time, I would have to say, I'll, I'll have to split that into two actually. Whether it's a, a fast bowler and and spin bowlers, I, I would say in terms of fast bowling, um, I would say Malcolm Marshall. And I think spin bowling for me, oh, tight between Warren and Rolithran, I think two magicians. Uh, I wouldn't like to separate them. I would like them both in my team. Uh, one ball on either end, so I, I, I would have I would have to twin the two of those together. Warren or Lithran and Mar- Marshall is a, a fast bowler. A fast bowler. And your favourite captain? You played under under two uh, Middlesex who were very successful. Yeah, for me, Mike Brayley. You know, for him because uh, I think what Mike Brayley was able to do, particularly with young players, because you know when he took over, all of us came into the side as young players, but you know, he was able to mould all of us by getting us involved from a very young age. It was not the old pro um, situation that would have pertained before, uh, where the youngsters had to st- sit in the corner and not be heard. Uh, no, he was the sort of captain that would, would involve you very much in what was going on. And in many ways, he would put the youngster on the spot. Even in the middle of a game, you know, he would walk up to you whether it was your first game or second game or whatever, and he would say to you things like, Roland, um, who do you think should ball at the other end when when Daniel's finish? Or what field do you think we should have for Jeff Boycott, etc.? So, you know, he was always testing you. And what it, what it did was it kept you very sharp because, you know, even if you were caught out the first time, you'd, you would be on your guard after that. You would make sure that it would never happen again. So, you know, for me... You know, he certainly was the best captain. I think Mike Gatting was a, you know, was a good captain, but in a different way. Mike Gatting was a, a person who liked to lead from the front uh, and for people to follow. So, two totally different captains, but for me, Brady was the one that I think I learned the most on. What about your favourite ground? Favourite ground, Lords. No question about that. Um, it's, I guess, 
it can become a little bit too familiar having played 20 years there. But, you know, on a big day, I don't think there is anywhere else to play. But, but Lords, you know, if you play in a, in a final or anything like that, yeah. you know, for me, that's the best. And your your favourite other sport, I think I can guess that one. It uh, uh, doesn't take a lot of working out. I think <laughs> football for me, definitely. I mean, I love other sports as well. I mean, I'm keen track and field and boxing, etc. But I think football for me is, is is another special sport along with cricket. And you played a bit of semi-pro for Stevenage and Biggleswade, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Stevenage, yeah. I mean, actually, um, I was the first black player to play for Stevenage. I mean, you you will you will see that in a new book that's coming out next month called Britain's Black Football Pioneers. And you will see that in there where that book chronicles the exploits of the first black player to play for every single league club in England, all 92 clubs. So there's chapters on each of those. Uh, yes, so I played for Stevenage. Was that during a, when you were still playing cricket for Middlesex in the winter, was it? Yeah. That was in the early days. Yeah, that was in the early days. I also played for Biggleswade under the gentleman I spoke to you about before, Cyril Hammond. Cyril Hammond, who was who was um, the captain, also the cricketer at Stevenage. He was also a football manager. And again, as I said, he was the one who took me to Gloucestershire. So I played under him at uh, Biggleswade. So you owe a lot to him then, don't you? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, to him and his family, um, because not just did he um, got me the opportunity to go there, but in the summers, I spent the entire summers um, with him and his family. I stayed I stayed with him. They did everything for me, cook, clean, wash, everything for for those. Um, yeah, I owe him a, a, great, a great deal of gratitude. That sounds like a good book to look out for as well, if it's coming out this year. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, as I say, it'll be out in August, and um, it, it's, it will be good reading. So what does the future hold for Roland Butcher? Well, for me right now... What I've done recently, I've, I've, I've published, actually, I've published a coaching, football coaching manual, which is out and really trying to assist the football in the Caribbean, um, trying to see whether we can develop the players to the level where, you know, we can actually see them performing on this national stage. Right now, the Caribbean, Caribbean loves football. You know, there are more people who love football than any other sport in the Caribbean and players as well. But... Uh, right now, they're, they're mere spectators, just really watching all the great players in the international leagues. Uh, for me, I want to see um, when you turn on your TV that you identify in the English Premier League. He's from Barbados, in La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, or Jamaica, or Trinidad, or whatever. Those are the sort of things I want to see. So this manual really is aimed at putting a, a developmental structure in place, you know, to assist the coaches and players in this region. So right now, that's something I'm working very hard on. Um, it's got very good reviews so far. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to, to doing some more work with that. Well, best of luck with that. that. And uh, thank you very much for joining me in the pavilion and being on the paddock and the pavilion. Stephen, um, it's, it's a great pleasure. And um, it's been good talking to you. And thank you. Anytime in the future that you need my assistance, I am only too happy to oblige you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pav.
Social Podcast Network.